Welcome to episode 13 of my podcast series, Stories Incomplete. This episode consists of comments and commentaries regarding what I have learned while creating the prior three stories, all titled Vietnam War Legacies, but told from three different people's perspectives. These stories are based on a true story that I had heard about through one of my acquaintances. As in the real life version, these stories have a happy ending. Han finds her father Trey, but it's too late for him to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. However, in the real life version, even if the admiration daughter had managed to find her biological father earlier, before her wedding, her father would have refused to walk his long lost daughter down the aisle stating, and I quote, that's an honor for someone that has actually raised her and done things for her. I'm not taking credit for things I didn't do. I missed 27 years. I don't know how I can ever make that up to her." End quote. Now, more than a decade after they were reunited, the biological father in the real story has worked hard at making it up to his daughter and to himself. Even though they live across the country from each other, father, daughter, and son-in-law visit each other regularly. What made the real-life ending possible was how the U.S. government and the Vietnamese government were able to work through the United Nations to create a path for these Amerasian children to immigrate to the U.S. legally. This program allowed approximately 25,000 of these discriminated against Amerasian kids to immigrate to the United States. Many of these Budoi, or insignificant children of the dust, expected to be reunited with their American fathers. Unfortunately, that was rarely the case. A 2014 New York Times article stated that less than 5% of these newly welcomed American citizens have actually managed to find their biological fathers, even though the vast majority have tried. Although the real-life biological father in these stories tried to stay in touch with and later locate his Vietnamese girlfriend and his daughter after his demobilization from Vietnam, Many of these American fathers didn't want to be found. Most had moved on with their lives. Many had married and had families of their own, and others just wanted to forget as much as they could about their experiences in Southeast Asia. To me, the bigger story is how these Budoi, these unwanted half Vietnamese, half American kids, have done so well after immigrating to the land of their fathers. They, like immigrants before and after, have blended into the American melting pot quite nicely, adding their own particular spice to our ever-expanding culture. We often criticize the workings of our government, and I'm no exception, but the research I have done to provide myself with a minimal background for these stories has left me with the opinion that the resettlement of these Amerasian children, along with tens of thousands of other Vietnamese refugees who emigrated to the United States following the collapse of South Vietnam, has been and continues to be a huge success, but one which gets little notice or notoriety. United States Senator Jeremiah Denton, a Republican, sponsored the first attempt, the Amerasian Immigration Act of 1982. Unfortunately, this attempt failed because Vietnam balked at classifying these potential Amerasian immigrants as refugees. Then, House of Representative member Robert Mazarek, a Democrat, and Senator John McCain, a Republican, 
and sponsored the Amerasian Homecoming Act of 1987, which was crafted to address the Vietnamese objections and streamline the process for these American citizens by their birthright to leave the discrimination they were facing in Vietnam and come home to a country that was welcoming to them. To me, not only was this an example of supreme diplomacy, working with a former enemy to address a humanitarian issue, but was also an example of a time when opposing political ideologies, Republican and Democrat, could work together. I doubt that in our currently fractured and overly divisive political climate in the United States today, any such compromise would be possible. Something else that delving into the background of the Vietnam War has left me with is a profound overview of what a mistake our government's involvement into the Southeast Asia upheavals of the late 50s and 1960s really was. The American public was clearly misled by both Republican and Democratic presidential administrations, both of whom were acting on information provided by American intelligence agencies. These agencies had their own motivations for maintaining the conflict in Southeast Asia. In retrospect, it's obvious that both military and diplomatic decisions were based on a faulty understanding of the situation in Southeast Asia and upon the domino theory. That is to say, if South Vietnam fell to the communist North Vietnamese, then, per the domino theory, all of Southeast Asia would fall like dominoes, eventually being converted into communist states, either through direct military aggression or through revolts supported by their neighboring communist countries. Judging from the fact that Vietnam did fall to communism, history has shown that the domino theory was simply wrong. Although Vietnam and Laos are still communist states, Cambodia has reverted to a constitutional monarchy after the communist Khmer Rouge were defeated. By the way, the Khmer Rouge were overthrown by their communist neighbors, Vietnam, before converting back to a constitutional monarchy. Somehow, that domino stood itself back up. In a twist of geopolitical irony, the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize was jointly awarded to Henry Kissinger, who was the American negotiator, and to Lee Duc Tho, who negotiated the Paris Peace Accords for the North Vietnamese. This was a total sham. Even though the Paris Peace Accords ostensibly guaranteed a ceasefire between North and South Vietnam, hostilities between North and South continued almost unabated in spite of this agreement, and all-out war between the two states had resumed by March 1973, months before Kissinger and Tho received the actual award. Regardless, the politicians, the media, and the world stuck to the script and hailed the Paris Peace Accords as a huge diplomatic success. The United States then promptly withdrew all of its forces. Peace with honor, as President Nixon called it. Congress also withdrew a majority of military and financial aid for our former ally, South Vietnam. Less than two and a half years later, in direct violation of the Paris Peace Accords, North Vietnamese forces had invaded and conquered the South, uniting the country under a communist regime. The Vietnam War era was a time domestically of great social upheaval in the United States. While we were engaged in a protracted police action in Southeast Asia, cultural mores were being challenged across the board back home. 
President Johnson had launched what he termed the Great Society, which was a domestic policy initiative in 1964. This wide-sweeping initiative was intended to eliminate poverty in the United States and redress social injustice through the power of government. New major federal spending programs were launched in areas spanning from education to housing and urban development. Many far-reaching federal programs were started at this time, including Medicare, federal aid to education, Head Start programs, and extensive federal aid for mass transportation. Of note, four major pieces of civil rights legislation were passed into law as well, including the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Department of Defense couldn't be left out of these initiatives and found a devious way to make up a chronic manpower shortage caused by the war in Vietnam. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and President Lyndon B. Johnson devised a plan to lower U.S. military entrance standards, both physical and intellectual, to allow more recruits into the military. Not only did this increase the pipeline of manpower to support the war in Vietnam, the thinking was that denying these men a place in the military was denying them an opportunity for job skills and upward mobility in society. Now, I agree that the military is a very successful mechanism for promoting both social and economic mobility. I saw how my father rose from a lower class life into an upper middle class life in a matter of years as he was promoted within the Air Force. But really, how could President Johnson and Secretary of Defense McNamara believe that inducting Forrest Gump's into the Army was a good idea? Approximately 375,000 servicemen who would have been rejected due to their low intelligence were instead accepted. Many could not read or write. Some could not even tie their boots correctly. Nevertheless, Secretary of Defense McNamara believed these shortcomings could be overcome with additional training and, furthermore, that their lives after their military service would be improved because of the better skills that the Army had provided them. Unfortunately, the results were humbling. Just sit back and think about it for a moment. Trying to teach these low intelligent Americans to be soldiers, guys who couldn't even, in some instances, tie their own shoes, then giving them loaded guns and sending them off to the jungles of Vietnam to fight a determined and experienced enemy? McNamara's morons, as they were to be called, were three times more likely to die in combat than their smarter comrades. What a time the 1960s were. We seem to be struggling with the exact same issues today that President Johnson's Great Society initiatives of the 1960s were meant to address. Social injustice, the cost of higher education and the student loan crisis, poverty and the expanding income gap, housing affordability, access to health care. The list of today's social ills seems eerily similar to then. Did those massive government programs of the 1960s actually solve anything? Now, over 50 years later, it doesn't seem so. Anyway, back to Vietnam. Like nearly all the former Marxist states of the 1970s, Vietnam has opened up to the Western world and embraced capitalism. Much like the People's Republic of China and the former Soviet Union, the Vietnam of today is a far cry from the communist state it was originally intended to be. 
Life there seems to be much better than it has been in decades. American and Western tourists are welcomed. The communists did win the Vietnam War, but capitalism seems to be winning over the world. Is that a good thing? Time will tell. Now, I think I'm going down the road a couple of miles to a local strip mall for a hot bowl of pho. Thanks for listening.